So Romans chapter 14, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Then there's Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. So it's the, well, it's the one, two, three, four, five, what, seventh book in? Um, Am I right about that? Fourth, fifth, sixth? Sixth book in, yeah. I, I didn't do the math in my head on the way here, sorry. I didn't major in math in seminary, so you know. All right, Romans chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 13. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is, not, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at this passage today, as we try to understand your word, try to get around some of the difficult things Paul says and understanding what this means, that something can be sin for one and not for another, what it means to, to love one another enough to restrain our liberty for the sake of one another. Father, we pray that we would not only understand your word, but as we study it and understand it, that we would love it, that we would be changed by it, that this would be a church that has great unity and love among the brothers. Father, we understand the liberty we have in the gospel and the freedom we have in the gospel, that we would rejoice in that, but never at the expense of a weaker brother. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us um, to understand your word and to love it and to apply it for your sake. Amen. Well, last week I began talking about the importance of unity in the church. And if you didn't hear that message last week, it is online. And I would encourage you to listen to it because it really lays a lot of foundation for what we're doing today. I'll try to repeat some of that foundation so that those of you who have not heard it can understand me. But But really, last week is where I sort of laid the biblical theological foundation for unity in the church. Why do we need unity in the church? And I said, in order for there there to be unity, we must not judge one another on indifferent matters. In other words, last week I talked about why we need to have unity and sort of what that looks like. This week I'm talking about expanding on this idea that if, if we are going to have unity, how does it happen? What has to occur? And the first thing I want to say is we must not judge one another on indifferent matters. What are indifferent matters? Well, the reformers called the indifferent matters, they called them adiaphora, indifferent matters. Matters on which the Scripture does not directly speak. Does not directly speak. Nor, and I want you to hear this further, nor are these behaviors, if they're indifferent matters or behaviors, nor are they 
condemned by necessary logical consequence. In other words, here's, here's the two categories for those things that are indifferent. Okay? They are not directly spoken of by Scripture, nor are they arrived at by necessary logical consequence. Not by logical consequence, by necessary logical consequence. There's a distinction. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. The Scripture does not directly condemn watching pornography on TV. Does not directly condemn watching pornography on television. Because there weren't any televisions when they were writing the New Testament. But it does directly condemn lust, and it does directly condemn sexual immorality. And it's logically necessary to conclude that watching pornography is participating in scripturally condemned behavior. You understand? However, we have a whole list of behaviors, a whole list of behaviors today that some people believe are off-limits in every circumstance, but that are not directly condemned, nor are they condemned by necessary logical consequence. I gave some possibilities of those last week. Let me repeat some from the list in case you weren't here to be duly offended so I can help you out with that this morning. Holidays, like Christmas. Some people think, you know, the celebration of Christmas might be a bad thing. In fact, I've even heard it said that if you take the, the letters for the name Santa and mix them up, it's spells Satan, right? You know? And so it's all bad to have you participating in Christmas. I've had one guy last year tell me that if I put a Christmas tree in my house, I was setting up an idol in my home. I don't worship my Christmas tree. Like I said last week, I think it's pretty and it smells nice. I have a freedom to have a Christmas tree in my home. Scripture never speaks on having a Christmas tree in your house, nor is there any logical, consequential doctrine that you get to the fact that you should never have a Christmas tree in your house. If you want to have a Christmas tree, great. If you don't, fine. Scripture doesn't say anything about it. Give you another example, um, Easter bunnies and Easter eggs. They aren't talked about in the Bible. If you want to have an Easter bunny in your house and cha- go hunt Easter eggs, fine. Just not talked about in Scripture. If you feel like, I can't do that because I feel like that's some kind of sin, don't do it. And if you have family members, we'll get to this, if you have family members or friends who are offended by it, then don't flaunt your freedom in their face. Halloween, trick-or-treating. But you know, you want to know what's funny? I did some research on Halloween um, and we talk about how churches have alternative carnivals for Halloween. That's fine. If I guess if we had a facility, maybe we would consider doing something like that. But these alternative um, carnivals, and they say, well, you know, trick or treating—that's a pagan activity. Actually, if you do the research on Halloween, trick or treating is a came around in the 1930s in the U.S. Mostly a, co- a commercial activity that happened. Really had no ties to paganism. You want to know what did have ties to paganism? Direct ties to paganism that happens at almost every Halloween carnival at churches all across the U.S. Bobbing for apples. Do you know that? That actually was a, a pagan practice in worship of sex and fertility gods, interestingly enough. Now, I don't think anybody's bobbing for apples at a church carnival worshiping fertility gods, but you understand my point, right? We, we have that sort of mindset that we start setting up things Scripture doesn't, and we condemn them outright, and we judge other people who participate in them, don't we? And if we participate in them and somebody else doesn't, we get irritated by that person, so we flaunt it or we despise them for not enjoying the same freedom we do, all of which is condemned in Scripture. Antidepressants. I hear Christians all the time coming down on those. Do you find anything in Scripture that says they're out altogether, categorically? I'd love to see it. Birth control pill. 
controversial one. There are some methods of birth control that are proven abortifacients. I have heard Christians tell people that they are in sin if they use the birth control pill. That's a difficult one because we don't know whether it's an abortifacient or not. Personally, I don't use, well, obviously I don't use. (laughs) My wife does not use the birth control pill currently. Well, we haven't for some time for other reasons, but you understand, we chose to stop using it, and I don't recommend the use of it because it could be an abortifacient. But I also don't run around condemning people who do use it because we don't really know if it's an abortifacient. Baby feeding and nap schedules. When we were young parents, we were always told that if you didn't feed your children at these certain hours, didn't give them naps at these certain hours, somehow we were in sin, right? You get in these discussions about demand feeding the baby versus schedule feeding the baby, and and we run around judging each other over whether we do it in the way we think it ought to be done. It's, It's ridiculous. It's crazy the things we're caught up with, and we lose the gospel. Alcohol. Drunkenness is condemned. Drinking alcohol is not. Vegetarianism, going green, buying organic. They're becoming the new staples for Christian circles to say these things are wrong. Right? That cow was mistreated before you bought the meat for which that cow was mistreated. So you're participating in the mistreatment of that cow by eating that meat. No, you're not. If you argue that, then you are overturning the argument Paul put down in Romans 14 that meat sacrificed to idols is okay to eat. You're not participating in the worship of those idols by even eating it. Schooling, the fact that it has to be, you have to homeschool or you have to private school or you have to public school. I've heard people argue for all three of those things. See, if you don't put them in public school, then you then you don't care about evangelism, right? Because your five-year-old is going to be doing lots of evangelism on campus, right? And if you, <laughs> if you don't put them in, in private school, then, they know, then you don't care about them being socially adjusted and hearing the gospel. And if you don't, care, if you don't homeschool them, then you're just going to turn them over to the wolves because you want them to be run off into rampant sin, right? I mean, those are essentially the categories people put this in. Politics. I, I hear people all the time, Democrats can't be Christians. Really? Where does it say that in the Bible? Where does it say that in the Bible? I, I, I have a problem with some views that some Democrats hold. There's no, nowhere in Scripture to say they can't be Christians. They might be wrong on certain issues. Tattoos and piercings. These are popular now, and some people point to the Old Testament. There's a couple of Scriptures where it forbids tattoos. Do you know in that same body of Scripture, it also forbids other things? You want, to, you want me to give you an example of something else that's forbidden? Eating shellfish and pork. Now, now, here's the thing about that. I hear people sitting around while they're eating their shrimp covered with bacon condemning people off tattoos, right? Or smoking. How about that? Smoking, you know, smoking occasionally. Not addiction. Addiction is always sin. Always sin. But smoking occasionally. I see people standing there holding their $3 cup of Starbucks coffee pointing at someone addicted to smoking, in a condemnatory fashion, I think to myself, well, you're missing the point here, aren't you? You're, you're, you're taking coffee in via an addiction, just like they're taking that tobacco in via addiction. Addiction's always wrong. Church music, here's the greatest one, that only organs are holy. Do you guys know there are whole churches? You can play the organ, but not the drums. That's devil music. You guys know that? Not the electric guitar. But you can play the organ. I, I know of a church. I, this, isn't, this is not an exaggeration. It's a true story. It blew me away. I know of a church that um, they had an organ, and they sold the organ. 
and the church split because the organ got sold. No lie, the church split, and the people who left the church went to the church where the organ was bought. True story. These are the kinds of things that we do in the body of Christ that are in no way, shape, or form Christian behaviors. Some people will judge those in the church who believe they're free to participate in these kind of activities. And they are free to participate. But others don't believe they are, and thus they judge them. And, and here's how the condemnation proceeds. I want you to hear how it proceeds. Well, the Bible tells me that I have a responsibility to not get drunk. And drinking alcohol can lead to drunkenness. And I'm a sinner, and I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself not to overdo it. And you're a sinner, and you shouldn't trust yourself not to overdo it either. And alcohol is a slippery slope, so if you drink, you are obviously unwise and trust yourself too much. And you're showing you're not the committed Christian that you really need to be. And if you really cared about holiness, you would avoid alcohol altogether. I've heard that argument made. And the argument's not altogether wrong. That's why it sounds so compelling. You are commanded not to get drunk. That's a true part of that argument. You can't get drunk if you don't drink alcohol, also a true part of that argument. You're a sinner and shouldn't trust yourself too much, also a true part of that argument. However, it does not necessarily follow that because those things are true, you will definitely end up getting drunk and being in sin. Nor does it follow that you are less committed to holiness because you participate in that freedom. Just the opposite, actually, according to Paul. What he says is you can drink alcohol to the glory and honor of God with thanksgiving in your heart. That's what he says. Those who don't believe this are not those who are really committed to the faith. That's what essentially is told to us. Well, I don't drink alcohol at all because I'm really committed and I'm not so sure about you. Those who restrict their own freedom, according to Paul, those who restrict their own freedom and judge others who partake are those whom Paul is calling the weaker brothers. Do you hear that? Those whom are being called the weaker brothers in this very text are those who restrict their own freedom on indifferent matters. The weaker brothers are not those who exercise their liberty. The weaker brothers are those who restrict their liberty. And they're not weaker because they are weaker in character or they're weak-willed. That's what a lot of people think when they see the weaker brother comments in Scripture. Paul just says nothing about them being weaker in character or weak-willed. He says they're weak in faith. And what does he mean by that? He means that they don't understand the immense freedoms they have and they don't trust the power of the gospel in their own lives or the lives of others. So they must result to making rules that remove liberties God has given them. Because that's the only way they know how to protect themselves. The problem with the weaker brother is he wants the Christian life to be a simple line in the sand. These things scriptures don't speak of these things over here, even the scriptures don't speak of, I'm going to make them morally impermissible. They're off limits. Here are the rules you follow in every case, without exception, on a different matters. And that way it makes life much easier for me to live, but it just isn't that easy to walk in wisdom with Christ. Paul wants to make abundantly clear that the stronger brothers, the stronger brothers, those who enjoy their freedoms, and this is the flip of this, those are not to despise the weaker brothers. They're not to despise them. See, a lot of people in circles that, ex that you know, participate in their liberties, 
that enjoy their freedoms are just as guilty of sin as those who restrict their freedoms and judge others. Now, it's not a sin to restrict your freedom. I, I want to say that. Not a sin. You're welcome to restrict it all you want, Paul says. As long as you do so for the honor and glory of God, restrict it all you want. It's a sin to judge others who, who don't restrict their, those freedoms. That's the sin. But on the flip side, stronger brothers, you may celebrate your liberties, but if you celebrate your liberties in a way that causes problems for your weaker brothers, if you despise your weaker brothers who've chosen to restrain their liberties, then you are also in sin. And you can look down your nose at them for judging you all you want, but you're participating in the exact same behavior. And that's what Paul's going to get at today. In fact, that's the majority of his focus, is the focus on the fact that those who are stronger, those who feel free to participate in those activities, the Scripture nowhere speaks about, he's saying to those people, for you to condemn the brother who restrains his freedom, for you to despise them, is sin on your behalf. Instead, he says, the, the stronger are to balance their liberty with love. It's a calling that's not easy to live out. Why? Because it's not always easy to balance liberty and love, is it? Or rights and responsibilities. We're this kind of country where, where we have rights being upheld as sacred. And increasingly, we could care less about our responsibilities to one another. We want to fight for our rights to the end. We could give a rip about our responsibilities. Our liberty has been so overrun by individualism that we don't seem to care anymore how the exercise of our liberty affects our brothers, affects our neighbors. And this same problem can happen in the church. It does happen in the church. And it's the problem Paul's addressing. Further, it's made even more complex because not only do we have to find the balance between our liberty and our love for our brothers in the church, but we also have to find the balance between sacrificing our liberties for our weaker brothers and at the same time re-educating the conscience of our weaker brothers. Because Paul spends plenty of time telling the weaker brothers, you are free to restrain yourself, but you need to know that your conscience is wrong on this matter. Your conscience is wrong. However, please don't violate your conscience. And we're going to get into what that looks like in a little bit. But the point is, is that when we're trying to figure out how do we balance liberty and love, how do we balance sacrificing for others and actually, and actually re-educating others' conscience, how do we do that? We have to understand that the issue of preeminent importance is that everything is for the upbuilding of the brother. Everything is for the unity of the church. Nothing is for my personal comfort and preferences. Hear that? That is never my motivation with regard to my brothers, my own rights, my own liberties, my own personal preferences. Hear that? Never. It's always what builds them up, what brings unity, what is loving to my neighbor. So how does this work out practically? What does it look like to balance love and liberty? What does it look like to balance rights and responsibilities? The unity of the church and your personal freedom. What does that look like? Well, I'm going to give you five restraints for your liberty, okay? Five restraints that love puts on your liberty. You ready for that? Or five guardrails that your love for God and others actually places on your freedom in Christ. First, first restraint is the restraint your, to restrain your liberty. You go, restrain your liberty if it will cause harm to the weaker brother. Hear that? 
You should restrain your liberty if it will cause harm to the weaker brother. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, that's the weaker and the stronger, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, what Paul says is, if it causes him stress or distress, if it grieves him, or if your activity is pulling him, if your activity is pulling him into the same activity which violates his conscience, then don't do it. If my drinking a beer or my participating in some kind of holiday festivity is going to cause a problem for my weaker brother who happens to be present while I'm doing it, if it's going to distress them or grieve them, if it's going to cause them to go into the same activity and violate their conscience, then I'm not supposed to do it because I'm not walking in love. Because here's the thing. Drinking a beer may not be sin for me, but it may be sin for my brother because he doesn't believe he's free to do it. Now, how something can be sin for me or sin for one other person and not for, you know, sin for me and not for another person or free for me and sin for another person, how that can be, I'm going to get to later. But the point is here that if your brother feels restrained from participating in that behavior, then don't trip them up. Don't participate in a way that pulls them into it. Don't cause them grief and distress. And he actually says, is your liberty really more important than loving your brother and causing harm? to the one for whom Christ died. Christ died for that brother. Is your liberty really so important to you that you're willing to harm someone for whom Christ died? That you're really willing to, in some way, destroy the progress of his faith? Lead him down a road that's sinful? Second, restrain your liberty if it will bring disrepute to the gospel. Here, the first one, restrain your liberty if it will cause harm to the weaker brother. Second one, restrain your liberty if it will bring disrepute to the gospel. Look what he says in verse 16 through 18. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. The gospel's given you freedoms, right? It's given you freedoms. But if your liberty or your freedoms is causing you to bring a bad reputation to the gospel, the gospel that gave you that liberty by causing a stumbling block or a distress or grievance to your brothers, then restrain your liberty. When he says here in verse 16, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of evil. He's speaking of the gospel that gave you these liberties. The gospel is what you regard as good. This liberty you have as a result of the gospel is a good thing, but it's going to be spoken of as evil if you participate in that liberty in a way that brings disrepute to the gospel by causing a weaker brother to stumble or leading a weaker brother into sin to violate his own conscience. Let me give you an example. And I'm just going to use the alcohol one because it's, it, it makes so much sense with some friends I have. I have some pastoral friends who believe, um, and they're pastors locally, and, and let me say this first, because these are a little bit disconnected. 
but these are, these are guys who are pastors who are striving to honor Jesus, but they just don't get the gospel. Sad, they just don't get it. They, 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 they miss the fullness of the good news of Jesus Christ. They run off into works, righteousness in some way, and they just don't get it. And I meet with them and talk about it. These guys happen to also think that to ever take a sip of alcohol is a horrible sin, ever. Take a sip is a horrible sin. Some of these men are, are so legalistic that, that they are caught up in their works all the time. And, and so I hang around with some of them, and I try to help them understand the gospel better. And we talk about the gospel, and they start struggling with what the gospel says. They, they come to the idea that they say, it's so hard for me to accept that the gospel is such free grace that you're talking about, that, that grace is so free, so promiscuous, that it almost seems like it's an invitation for me to sin. Because Paul says in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So what you're saying is, even though I'm a sinner, and even though I sin, Jesus is my righteousness, Jesus is my hope, Jesus is the one whom I trust, and if I look to him, in spite of the fact that I've sinned, God will forgive me for all my sin because of what he did, nothing of what I've done, because what he did, God will forgive me for all my sin, and God will count me with his righteousness. I'll be credited with his life. Really? That seems like too good of news. It seems like such good news that it basically says to me, the door has been thrown open for me to sin all I want. That is hard for me to accept that that's the gospel and I keep telling them, if your gospel doesn't lead to the question that Paul assumes his listeners will ask, in Romans chapter 1 through 5, Paul lays out the freedom of grace in the gospel, and then he assumes his listeners are going to ask a question. And if your gospel that you preach doesn't lead to that same question from your listeners, you're not preaching the same gospel that Romans preaches. You're not preaching the biblical gospel. And what's the question? After Paul lays out the incredible grace of the gospel, the immense freedom that it brings, he says this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning or continue in sin so that grace may abound? And then the answer is, may it never be. Paul assumes that your gospel will lead to someone asking that question because his did. It wouldn't help as I'm explaining the biblical gospel to these guys and as they're starting to catch a hold of it and go, yeah, I get it, okay. It wouldn't help if while we're out at lunch having that meeting, if I said, you know what, I'm gonna order a beer and I popped open a beer and started drinking it. That would not help, would it? It would actually bring disrepute to the gospel unnecessarily, causing brothers to stumble. So I abstain I abstain from doing that for the sake of not bringing a bad reputation of the gospel of free grace that gives me the liberty to do it. I abstain for their sake, for the sake of the gospel. To, re to not restrain your liberty, listen, to not restrain your liberty when you're in front of a brother who might stumble as a result, when you're in front of a brother who might be grieved as a result, to not restrain your liberty is to fundamentally, fundamentally underestimate the value of the kingdom that the gospel saved you into. See that? Fundamentally underestimate the gospel and the kingdom that it saved you into. Look at verse 16. Or verse 17, I'm sorry. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter 
of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look what he said. He said, don't let what you regard as good, the gospel has given you this liberty, to be spoken of as evil. For, here's the reason, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he says is, the value of the kingdom is not preeminently the freedom to eat and drink. That's not its preeminent value. The value of the kingdom is the righteousness that you receive. That speaks of your justification, your forgiveness of sins, the declaration of righteousness. It is the peace that you receive. That speaks of the reconciliation you have between you and God, that you were once an enemy and now you're a friend. It's the joy in the Holy Spirit that you receive. That's the joy that Paul speaks of in Romans 5 when he says that we rejoice, what? In the hope of glory, the certainty that we will be with him and see him forever. That's the value of the kingdom of God. Righteousness and peace and joy, not beer and food offered to idols. Okay? You're free to participate in those things. But really, if your freedom is so important to you that you will actually cause someone else to stumble in sin or grieve a brother so that you can drink a beer, then you misunderstand the value of the kingdom that the gospel saved you into. I mean, what difference does giving up alcohol or some other thing for the sake of the gospel make? What difference? I mean, think about the comparison. Beer, righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Really? You know, are they even on the same playing field? When you sacrifice for the gospel, you're serving Christ. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 18. And you're acceptable to God. In other words, God approves of your actions. And you're approved by men. In other words, other men will see that you're sacrificing for the sake of someone else, and that'll please them as well. Third, restrain your liberty if the pursuit of peace and mutual upbuilding requires it. Hear that? Restrain your liberty if the pursuit of peace and mutual upbuilding or edification, if you want a shorter word, requires it. Look at verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to, symbol, to, excuse me, to stumble. We are to actively pursue building up our brothers in Christ. We are to actively pursue bringing unity to the body of Christ. And if this means we have to put away some of our liberties or restrain some of our rights, so what? What's the big deal? Why would we destroy the unity and peace of the church, i.e., as Paul says in verse 20, the work of God for the sake of food? And really, why would you do that? For the form of music that your church listens to. Why would you destroy unity and peace for the sake of an organ? or drums, or whatever it is. Why? How unbelievably selfish could we be to do that? However, if we put away our liberty for the sake of others, what does he say? Verse 20, 21, it is good not to eat. He doesn't say it's not good to eat, okay? 
He says, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. What's he saying? What he's saying is it's actually beautiful. God considers it beautiful, that's the word here, for you to put away something you have the right to participate in for the sake of someone else. Because it's considered a beautiful act. Because you're acting in a way that is demonstrating self-sacrifice. Four, restrain your liberty to your own private affairs. You hear me, what I said there? Restrain your liberty to the realm of your own private affairs, okay? Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, what Paul's saying here is, keep your liberty at home, right? Don't flaunt your liberty. You can do this or that, great, but don't flaunt it in front of others, keep it to yourself. Let me give you an example of what that flaunting might look like, okay? I'm not a person who's like radically opposed to Harry Potter movies, okay? Some people are. In fact, I have a family member who is radically opposed to the Harry Potter movies. Radically opposed. Now, here's what would be flaunting my freedom would be. Knowing that they're radically opposed to them, they show up during the holidays here and I say, hey, want to go see Harry Potter? See my ticket stub? Check it out. Right? Knowing that would offend them. Setting out in some way to flaunt my liberty in their face. And what Paul says is, don't do that. You're not walking in love if you do something that distresses or causes stumbling for your brother. So you might have family members, here's how you apply this, you might have family members who are very opposed to certain activities, who are Christians. You know what you probably shouldn't do during this holiday season? Is take out whatever it is they're opposed to and flaunt it in their face. Right? Walk in love. You may have to restrain some of your activities for their sake. Because you love them. And you don't want to cause them to stumble and you don't want to grieve them. Now, sure, take time to re-educate their conscience, but generally Christmas isn't the great time to do that, incidentally, just as a side note. But you understand the point, right? Five, this is the last one. Restrain your liberty if exercising it will offend your conscience. Do you hear that? This is really one Paul throws out there for the weaker brother. What he's saying to the weaker brother is you have liberty to do all these things you don't even know you have the liberty to do, but restrain your liberty if it exercising it will offend your conscience. Look at verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Last week I made this comment that, that something might be sin for you and not for me. Or vice versa. When we were driving home, Teresa actually asked me, actually we were driving over to get some lunch, Teresa asked me how it is possible that something could be sin for someone else and not for another. How could it be sin for this person and not for that person? If it can even be a blessing from God for one person to drink a beer, how can drinking the same beer be a sin for another? And that's a question that really drives at the motivation for our behavior. Do you hear that? Drives the motivation for our behavior. Why is something sin for one person and blessing for another? 
Now, we're talking about indifferent matters here. We're not talking about things that are clearly sin. Look, it's clearly sin for anyone to get drunk. It's clearly sin for anyone to participate in sexual immorality. It's clearly sin for anyone to lie or to murder. You guys follow me on that? Clearly sin. Bible lays out clearly. But on the indifferent matters, why would me getting a Christmas tree be fine and for someone else sin? How could that be? The answer to this question gets really the motive of our behavior. If it's not from faith, it's sin. Hear that? As Paul says, whatever's not from faith is sin. If you can't do something in good conscience, hear that? If you can't do something in good conscience, if it offends your conscience to do it, then you don't believe it's the right thing to do. Isn't that right? Why would something offend your conscience if you thought it was the right thing to do? It wouldn't. It offends your conscience because you believe it is not the right thing to do. If it offends your conscience because it's not the right thing to do, then you don't do it. If you do something that you don't believe is the right thing to do, then you're doing that thing with wrong motives, aren't you? If I think it's wrong to drink a beer and I'm sitting around with a group of friends and I think it's wrong and it offends my conscience to do it, and I go ahead and participate in the activity anyway, I'm not participating in the activity because I think that it honors God, that it brings glory to him, and because I'm thankful for this, am I? I'm participating in the activity because I'm walking in the flesh in some way. Perhaps it's peer pressure. Perhaps it's the I want the approval of men. Perhaps it's just that I'm feeling rebellious that day. I know this is wrong. I feel bad about this. But you know what? I'm going to rebel and do it anyway. None of those motives, none of those motives are from faith. They're all from the flesh. Hear that? In other words, you're doing it not because you worship God and are thankful, but because you worship something else and are not really thankful. And at its root, it's covetousness, Paul calls it, which Paul calls idolatry in Colossians. At its root, because it's not from faith, therefore it's sin. What I'm doing is I'm saying, I don't have this thing. What's the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet, right? Why? Because when you don't covet something you don't have that you wish you had, right? It carries over. I don't have this liberty, but I wish I did. We actually do, but you don't even recognize it. And so I'm coveting this thing that this other person has, and so I'm going to do this out of some kind of covetousness in my life, out of some kind of idolatry for the approval of men, out of some kind of rebellion in my heart. Not because I want to glorify God or give thanks, but because I want something for me. Paul says that's sin. It's sin. Your motive isn't right. It's wanting something more than you really want to please God, is what he's saying. The thing you want to do may not be inherently sinful. It may not be inherently sinful. But the reason or the motive for you wanting to do it is inherently sinful. So for you, it's sin. Your conscience may be wrongly informed. However, that's really secondary to Paul's point. He recognizes multiple times that these, these weaker brothers' consciences are wrongly informed, doesn't he? On multiple occasions, he says, hey, that thing's clean. It's clean, but not for you. Hey, I'm free to do that, and blessed am I if I do it and don't have any reason to, to feel judged for doing it. Blessed am I if I do, but for you, it's sin. What's he recognize? I'm going to try to re-educate your conscience, but at the same time, here's the thing. 
while I'm re-educating your conscience, I'm going to be clear to make sure that I don't violate your conscience. I don't encourage you to violate your conscience. Get it re-educated before you go and participate in that freedom activity. Because if you participate for any other reason than because you're trying to honor and glorify God and give him thanks, it's for you, it's sin. What he's saying is never move against, never move against your love for God and what pleases him. Never. Never. Throughout this, Paul, excuse me, throughout this passage, Paul's been pointing to the fact, been pointing to the fact that the whole of the Christian life is not about pleasing yourself. It's about loving God and others. From Romans 12 through Romans 15, 13, he is laying out the fact that the Christian life, the response to the gospel, the proper rational response to the mercies of God is to love God and other people, not to please yourself, to do what's best for the body, to do what's best for the brothers, not for yourself, to do what honors God, not what pleases your flesh. That's the rational response. This is what Christians do because why? This is what our God did, isn't it? See, this drives us right back to the gospel. How so? Because Jesus, the Lord of glory, gave up all his divine rights in order to please the Father and for the sake of others, didn't he? He lived perfectly in our place. Himself, the lawgiver, becoming the law keeper humbling himself, humiliating himself to be a man in our stead. He paid our penalty on the cross, though innocent, though guilty of nothing. He paid our penalty on the cross for us. And he rose from the dead for us. So that if we believe in him, we'll be saved. That's the gospel. That's what it says. That Jesus gave up everything for our sake. For our sake. So if we believe in him, we'll be saved. We'll be counted righteous. We'll be forgiven of our sins. That's the gospel message. And what Paul's essentially saying is, if you get that gospel message, if you understand that, then why would you not follow in the footsteps of your Savior by saying, I will now lay down my rights for the sake of others because Jesus did it for me. If you don't know Christ, I'll tell you this, if you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, you need to turn to Christ in faith. You need to believe in him. You need to look to him. If you look to Jesus, you will be saved. If you do not look to him, you are already condemned in your sin. But if you look to him, you will be saved. And if you do know Christ, then be thankful. Why? Because that while you fail to put aside your rights for others, don't you? Have you guys ever failed to put aside your rights for others? While you fail to put aside your rights for others, Jesus never did. And that is credited to you. And now you can go and redouble your efforts to put aside what pleases you for the good of others in the unity of the church. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful for your word and its truth. We are thankful for the fact that Jesus has saved us. He has done this work that we did not deserve. And that in him, we have forgiveness of our sins and we have the crediting of righteousness and we have immense freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Father, we pray that we would never use our liberty in a manner that is unloving. 
that we would always restrain it with love. Father, that we would always care for the brothers and sisters in the body who, who struggle with certain liberties. Father, we pray for the weaker brothers that they would not be judgmental, that they would seek to honor God and give thanks as they restrain themselves in even unnecessary ways, Father, they would just give thanks and honor you in it. We pray for the stronger brothers, those who understand their liberties, Father, in this congregation. Sisters, we pray for them, Father, that they, they would never use their liberty as an opportunity to cause grief or stumbling in the life of, of someone else, but always be willing to put it aside for the sake of others and the unity of the church. Father, we pray for those who do not know you, that they would turn to you in faith, they would look to you, worship you, know you're their only hope. And we pray also, Father, for those who do know you, Father, that we would be reminded of the gospel, always mindful, always preaching it to ourselves, always knowing our need for grace. Father, always recognizing that it's all been provided for us in Jesus. That because he never failed to sacrifice his rights for others. Father, that's credit to our account. And it gives us courage to go forward and try again. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.